Why do we hate carbon taxes? This is The Big Question. Each month in The Big Question, we explore the world's biggest challenges with researchers from the University of Calgary. Economists agree that carbon pricing is an effective and fair way to change behavior and curb emissions. Yet political resistance is fierce, with voters opposing carbon taxes and other climate policies. But why is that? In this episode of The Big Question, we look at why carbon taxes are so unpopular. We're talking to a sustainable development professor from the University of Calgary. I'm uh, Harry Vredenberg. I'm a professor at the Haskane School of Business, where I hold the Suncor Chair in Strategy and Sustainability, and I'm also a research fellow at the School of Public Policy. I think it's safe to assume we all know what a carbon tax is. We also call it carbon pricing. And we all seem to have an opinion on it one way or the other. But what is the purpose of carbon pricing? The purpose of carbon pricing is actually a very fundamental economic concept of what economists call internalizing an externality. Carbon emissions, greenhouse gas emissions, are a negative externality. They are a uh, something that has a negative impact on society that the user or the emitter is not having to pay for. And so our carbon tax in economic theory is simply internalizing or putting a cost on that external effect on society. And so it's actually something that is what almost all economists stand behind as the best way to uh, to deal with uh, with carbon pollution or greenhouse gas emissions, is to put a price on it so people are aware of it and make adjustments accordingly in their consumption behavior and in production of energy and, and other uh, types of goods. Now, one of the key things, and I think that people sometimes uh, leave out, is carbon tax by itself won't necessarily affect that. And I sometimes hear uh, complaints about, well, why just because you're co- it's costing more, I can't change what I'm going to do because I need to drive a truck for my work. Uh, well, it can o- a carbon tax can only be effective if people actually have alternatives. So if you have an alternative of driving your car to downtown Calgary uh, or taking the the light rail transit, which is uh, zero carbon or lar- largely zero carbon because it's wind-powered uh, train system, uh, then you do have an option. And once you change your habits, you actually would reduce your, your emissions by not driving your car and taking the LRT. Now, if you're a farmer and you depend on your truck to get around or you, or you live in a rural area where there's no alternative, then raising uh, or adding a carbon tax, raising your costs is only going to cost you more if you don't have alternatives. So we have to do both both at the same time. We have to be raising the costs of producing emissions and at the same time making sure that we have viable alternatives for people to take that are lower emitting or uh, make exceptions for people who are in situations that are very difficult to, to change or uh, are producing in the economy. They have businesses. They need, may perhaps need to drive for whatever. And so you can make exceptions for people like that. What would be an alternative for rural Albertans who rely on their trucks or for businesses that need to get their cargo from point A to point B? In, in the short run, there probably are not alternatives. In the longer run, it's, it's, it's usually technologies. Um, you know, if uh, right now you may be driving a, a Ford F-350 or 450, and if you look at what farmers drive in Europe or in other parts of the world, they often make do with uh, vehicles that are much smaller, have smaller engines, and have smaller emissions. So over a couple of years, uh, that people would 
change their behavior next time they buy a vehicle, maybe buy one that has a smaller engine and, and lower emissions. And that goes with any of these things. These things don't happen instantly. Um, I remember years ago seeing a study of uh, the, the building of a transit system, and it would generally take a cycle of behavior for people to actually change large behaviors like buying a house that's closer to uh, to a, a transit system. Or when a car is up for a renewal, you need to buy a new car saying, well, you know, maybe we could do without a car or without a second car, whatever it might be. But these behaviors change over a period of time. So what we see in our current politics, our current events, there's so much talk about carbon taxes. Why do we hate carbon taxes so much? Well, I personally don't hate carbon taxes, but a lot of people do. And I think the issue has become very politicized. As I said, anyone who is uh, concerned about climate change and doing something about climate change recognizes that carbon pricing is is one of the is probably the, the the most major way forward is the most efficient way forward economists have shown done studies that all the other things subsidizing one thing or another or or government by building certain things are much less efficient than actually carbon taxes but one of the things is itself when when economists talk about it, they talk about carbon pricing putting a price on an externality. But when you put it as a carbon tax, who likes a carbon tax? Nobody likes a tax of any sort, whether it's a sales tax, another issue here in Alberta. Everybody hates a tax of every sort, income tax, sales tax, carbon tax. So that's part of the issue. And then I think in Canada, we have another thing as well, that it's central government versus Alberta or Ontario, whatever it might be. Um, it's a central government forcing this upon upon the provinces, and I think that's part of uh, the reality is as well. Don't tell me what to do, and don't add new taxes uh, for me. But for Canada, there's another aspect as well, and that's Canada's competitiveness internationally. Uh, Canada's largest export industry is our oil industry, and our oil industry has a a branding or a reputational problem. Many people still refer to it as dirty oil that, that we sell. We have some 50 years worth of reserves here in, in Western Canada, uh, but it's perceived by many people as being dirty oil. It's much less dirty than it used to be. My own studies have shown that using something called uh, energy return on investment, basically there's a direct correlation between how much energy it takes to produce oil and how much emissions are put into the air. And in the Canadian oil sands, these have come down dramatically. And I've, I've done studies that I've published in Energy's Journal and the Journal of Cleaner Production that have shown that the oil sands are no dirtier than average. They're, I mean, oil is not clean, but the, Al the Alberta oil sands are no dirtier. They're about average. And there's actually arguments to be made that they could become in the next few years cleaner. And we make that argument in one of our papers that um, we have here with the oil sands a long-term resource uh, which technology is being constantly developed to do that more e energy efficiently, and it's there. We're not doing exploration. That is actually there. We know it's there, and it's just a manufacturing process to get this stuff out. In more conventional oils around the world, you're constantly exploring and looking for new reservoirs, and the newer reservoirs, as oil is being developed, are harder and harder to produce. They take more and more energy. So over uh, the world... The energy return on investment, that's energy in and energy out to get the oil produced, is actually declining worldwide while it is improving uh, in, uh, with, with the oil sands. So we, could, we, we see if we do direct uh, projections of uh, the oil sands within the next three to four years, they could actually be cleaner, if you want to say that, uh, than, than other oils. But again, back to what people's problems are with carbon tax, it's very much political. 
the reality is many people in business actually think that the carbon tax makes the most sense because it's the economically most efficient way to do this. Economists, almost to a person, uh, are in favor of carbon tax. Business says, put in a carbon tax. Well, then we'll know what to deal with. And in fact, many companies already have what economists refer to as shadow price. They have a shadow carbon price, uh, essentially a pretend price. Let's say we make decisions based on as if there is a carbon price in place. And that's already in many companies. Many proponents of Canadian oil will often talk about how unclean foreign oil is. Is there a difference between the cleanliness of domestic oil versus overseas oil? Yeah, there are differences between all different kinds of oil in terms of quality. And we wouldn't necessarily use the term cleanliness, but quality of oil or emissions associated with oil. That's what people often think about. And um, oil sands oil is, at from, this, from the get-go, is dirt here, if you want to call it that, because the emissions are higher to get the oil sands out of the out of the ground. Basically, what it means is how much energy does it take to get the oil out of the ground? Now, if you're in Saudi Arabia, I used to make an example, you just stick a straw on the ground and the oil you know, flies out. In the oil sands, not so much. It's stuck in there and it has to be warmed up and it, you need... Uh, you need to warm it up and you need to get horizontal wells and then vertical wells to the surface so it takes a lot more energy. You have to put steam into the ground if you're using SAG-D or some way of warming it up. So all that is energy. And the more energy you put into something, the more emissions generally you're going to get out of that if it's some sort of hydrocarbon energy. So right in the SAG-D process, you put steam into the ground and you need natural gas to produce the steam and using natural gas to, to heat water to make steam produces emissions. So in, on, a, on a very basic level, the oil sands are dirtier than, say, Middle Eastern oil, Saudi oil, because it's very light and sweet and it's very easy to get out of the ground and it's also very cheap to get out of the ground. But over time, technology has been developed that reduces the amount of energy that it takes to to get the oil out of the ground. Um, we're looking at various different ways. First of all, simple efficiencies, tightening things up and, and being being generally more energy efficient. Uh, but also we're looking at different ways of uh, using um, electricity or sometimes even renewable electricity to produce heat, to produce the oil to the surface. But all that said, probably Middle Eastern oil, specifically Saudi oil, is some of the cheapest and easiest to extract and thereby is probably also has the lowest carbon or you might argue the, the cleanest. However, that oil is also uh, uh, transported over long distances, uh, and that all comes with a carbon cost as well. When you're shipping it from the Middle East to Canada, uh, it, it, it comes with, uh, with significant emissions. And then many, many people also bring up the fact that that oil comes from a regime that is not as democratic, shall we say, as, as Canada, and which is another factor. Shifting gears to policy, what do policy analysts say in regards to carbon pricing? Most uh, policy analysts who are trained in economics would say that uh, carbon pricing is the most efficient way. There are many other things that you can do. You can bring in uh, energy efficiency programs. You can bring in um, policies to help people put... Uh, new windows in their in their houses and various other things, they're all considered to be, from various studies, to be much less efficient. For, for bang for your buck, for a dollar spent, you're going to get more in carbon pricing or carbon taxing than from anything else. But in considering that people have to have alternatives, simply taxing them for something that they have no alternatives to, to, to turn to uh, is not very effective. So you need to do both. 
when the corporations have their shadow pricing and when policy analysts agree mostly on the effectiveness of carbon pricing, why are some segments of society so opposed to carbon taxes and carbon pricing? Yeah, I think the opposition is in part because of ignorance, in part because people are resistant to change. So first of all, any tax is generally unpopular. And then there's the, the party politics of liberal conservatives and, and central government versus uh, Alberta or uh, provincial governments. But people are also generally uneasy with making change. If you tell someone who's used to driving their car everywhere to say, you know, leave your car at home and uh, because it's, you know, we're, it's going to be more expensive, uh, uh, your, your gasoline and take the train or, or, or bus or something, they're generally unwilling to do so. Uh, and we're very much here in Western Canada, a car-based society, a, a largely suburban society. I personally get a kick out of it. I travel a lot to Europe, and I'm originally from, from the Netherlands, and many people uh, take public transit or ride bicycles everywhere. They don't drive everywhere. And I find it interesting as well, and I go to London, England, that uh, I travel with executives who in Calgary would drive their car downtown and park uh, in the parking garages downtown to go to their office. When you go to London, nobody even dreams of taking a car or even a taxi anywhere. Everybody takes the tube. So shortly after the 2019 federal election, the company known as Encana announced that it would be moving to the United States and changing its name. Alongside the verbiage that we see coming out of this central government versus the provincial governments, they seem to be talking about the jobs impact. For example, they may say, we're losing jobs because of these carbon approaches by the central government, or we are losing jobs, or they're moving away because of these approaches, or any variation of that. So do carbon taxes have negative effects on the economy? I don't think the Encana move uh, to the U.S. and rebranding had anything to do with carbon tax, but it may well have something to do with uh, with the re-election of the Liberal government in Ottawa. And I don't think it was coincidental that the move was announced uh, the day after uh, the election results. Um, but I think that's not carbon tax. That is the general investment climate that is being perceived uh, with the, the current Liberal government. And um, it is has more to do with the uh, government's seeming hesitation to act um, in a forceful manner on pipelines. And pipelines are all about access to markets. And the real reason that, uh, that Western Canada is suffering is because we don't have what's known in the industry as egress. We cannot get the oil out of here. Our oil is landlocked. All the pipes are full. Uh, everyone thought the pipes would have been f approved and would have been built by now, uh, getting the oil to the markets, and the markets are not really in the United States. The United States was historically Canada's only real market because the oil came from here and it was needed in the U.S. After the fracking revolution, which hit North America, both the United States and Canada, there's a glut of oil available in the United States as well as natural gas, and Canada has lots of it, but the U.S. doesn't need to buy it. Uh, where it is needed, however, is in Asia. And to get to Asia, you need pipes to get to the coast in order to ship it to Asia. And the perception is that the Liberal government, the Trudeau government, has been kind of hesitant. They say on the one hand, yes, we're in favor of this, we're going to do this, and then they, they backpedal or they seem to not be very forceful in, in pushing it through. And I think that's what we do see, um, a, a real um, issue that investors say, Canada's risky. 
don't want to invest in Canada because uh, we can't, if you produce oil, you can't get it, uh, get it to Tidewater, as it's known. And that's a real issue. I'm on several boards of directors of, of companies, both uh, oil and uh, power companies, and in oil companies that are operating in, uh, in Western Canada. That is a real, a real worry. A real worry is that what happens when you cannot get access to markets through pipelines, you have to sell it into a market where there's a glut already. So what happens when you have a glut that you're trying to sell into? You get very low prices. And that's the reason that investors and companies say, well, maybe Canada is not a place to be. So if the Trans Mountain Pipeline had been built by now, would carbon taxes be so unpopular? Would that affect or change the investor confidence in Western Canada? I think um, Canadian voters or Western Canadian voters kind of went along with that in the 2015 election. Okay, we will grudgingly, we, didn't, we still don't like carbon tax, but we'll grudgingly accept that as long as our economy is strong. But the fact that we're talking carbon taxes and we still don't have markets or market access for our oil industry is, is problematic. Central issue for me is how do we move forward in a way that responds to the concerns that uh, Albertans and, uh, and Saskatchewanians have uh, clearly expressed. We will be continuing uh, with the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion. On one hand, we need to reduce carbon emissions and become less reliant on fossil fuels. But on the other hand, we're still building pipelines and looking to ramp up production. How do these two ideas coexist? Through demand. Demand for oil will um, plateau and probably decline over the long run. But that long run is probably quite some ways off. And for the uh, foreseeable future, there's going to be demand for oil. And in the much longer run, there will always be demand for oil, although albeit somewhat lower. Right now, I would argue that the reason we still need pipelines here and we still produce oil here is that we can do it in a much more efficient and environmentally responsible manner than in other, many other places in the world. If we don't build pipelines here or if we shut down the complete Canadian oil industry, the demand for oil would still be there for quite some time and it would be supplied by the Russians or Angolans, countries whose uh, environmental policies are not nearly as, as, uh, as, as strong as ours. If policymakers and economists agree on carbon pricing, how do they make carbon pricing more attractive? So how to make carbon taxes more palatable? Well, for one thing, drop the tax and call it price. It's a small thing. Call it carbon pricing, which is what economists have always called it. And then there's there are two other concepts there. One is... Um, is known what refer, what economists refer to as revenue neutral carbon taxing, uh, and it, it's a real concern of policymakers as well as um, voters that if we introduce a new tax or carbon price, that governments cannot be trusted to uh, to do the right thing with that. Now, the right thing, as far as economists are concerned, when we first started talking about carbon pricing, was that you would be paying a tax on your carbon emissions, and that would be given back to everybody through a, 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 an income tax rebate or some sort of manner, so that what you were doing, you were getting a penalty. Those who were continuing to emit lots of uh, greenhouse gases would have a penalty, but everybody would get that money back. There would be no net gain by the government from these taxes. 
Um, but of course, everybody worries about governments because politicians love to say, oh, here's a new source of, uh, of, of income, these new carbon taxes, and we can spend them any way we want and give them to voters in this region that we want to buy their votes or in this region, this, this industry, because we want to buy their votes. And that is not very efficient from, a, from an economist's point of view. And so the, the, the right principle from an economist's point of view is to have this re- revenue neutrality. Government doesn't get any taxes. People get it back. Only those who emit and don't change their behaviors pay that penalty of having, paying that carbon price. Now, there's another way that you could do it as well, which may be more politically palatable, and that is take the carbon uh, monies in, the carbon tax monies in, and then spend them on those developing alternatives. So take the carbon tax um, revenues and put them towards uh, adding on or enhancing the uh, the public transit system. For example, the new line in, in, of, of the, the LRT in, in Calgary. So that makes some sort of sense. From an economic efficiency point of view, carbon neutral or revenue neutral carbon taxes actually make the most sense. Uh, but politically palatable, perhaps taking those monies and channeling to, towards alternatives is, is a very good thing as well. But the worst thing is, is politicians taking in the money and then spending them on their own pet projects which don't have much economic sense. Do the positive economic benefits outweigh the negative economic benefits to carbon pricing? Um, I think so. Um, well, for one thing, um, the reason you do carbon pricing is to address climate change. Uh, and so there isn't necessarily a, a, a benefit to it. It would be relatively neutral, except that we would be reducing the carbon emissions. But in reality, there could be positive benefits economically from it uh, when you're an exporting nation like Canada is that exports oil. I'm uh, chairing a session in London, England at the end of this month uh, on energy and markets on energy. And one of the things we're dealing with is Canada's reputation. And uh, in my view, what we want to do is be seen very proactive and progressive in that regard. I always like to use Norway as an example. Norway is is different from Canada in many ways. It's a much smaller country. It's kind of like if Alberta was a country rather than Canada being a country. Uh, and the Norwegians all know that their wealth, they were once before they got oil, it was a very poor country of fishermen and farmers. When they discovered oil and started producing oil, they became a very wealthy country. And I think every Norwegian knows that the reason they are wealthy is because of the oil. But they also know that the world is changing, that we're transitioning to lower carbon. So while they are continuing to produce oil, they're continuing to op- to drill new major reservoirs offshore in, in, in Norway. Uh, Norway is also seen internationally as a very progressive country. There are more electric, battery electric vehicles in uh, in Oslo than than anywhere else, or in Norway, but in 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 Oslo than anywhere else. They also have a large proportion of their electricity comes from renewables, which is mostly hydroelectric, which is fortunate. Um, they have many other policies that are some of the most progressive policies. And you say, how do you? How do you balance that off with them being an oil country? Well, they recognize that the demand for oil is going to be there. They're going to continue producing that and then using that income to get ahead of the curve to be a leader in terms of uh, energy consumption uh, that is much lower carbon. And that's what I say is what we need to be doing in Canada as well. With the political opposition to carbon pricing, as well as your earlier referral to the impact that it has on the global perception of Canada, What does the rest of the world think about this issue? And then what does the rest of the world think about Canada with regards to this issue? 
Um, well, Canada does not have a very good reputation right now. When you combine sort of what uh, we're, we've, we've not, the industry and, and Canada as a, as a whole has not done a very good job of painting uh, Canada in a favorable light. We have dirty oil, which people still refer to the oil sands, despite the fact that it is, not, it is no dirtier than any than the average oil, and at the same time, we are constantly making the news with these fights over stopping pipelines and uh, indigenous people being, you know, portrayed as being uh, run over by by pipeline interests and and things like that, and the and the fights over the carbon tax. Uh, so our 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 reputation internationally is hurting right now, and in my view, we'd be much better off as being seen as the progressive country we were once seen as, and we also happen to be an oil producer and do that in the most responsible way, the most uh, environmentally responsible way. And by the way, we're also doing some very cool new technologies. I work with my colleagues across campus at the University of Calgary, and most people don't realize that here at the University of Calgary, one of the coolest new ideas that's being developed is uh, zero-carbon hydrogen. Hydrogen, by the way, when we talk about battery electric cars, they, they are probably going to be the thing of the future. At one point, we will all be driving battery electric cars. But battery electric cars, Teslas, are not appropriate for everything. They're not appropriate for large freight trucks. They're not appropriate for ships on the ocean. They're not appropriate for airplanes. Uh, and for that, w- another fuel that's appropriate there and that is very viable is is hydrogen. Hydrogen doesn't produce any emissions in use, just a little bit of water, as, as a vehicle. But the problem with hydrogen is the production of hydrogen is generally 90% of it, I believe, is associated with being produced from hydrocarbons and it produces uh, greenhouse gases into the air in production. So the way you can address that is by making hydrogen from renewables through um, electrolysis process, which does not emit uh, greenhouse gases, or you can produce this from hydrocarbons and capture and store or use the the carbon, or a new technology that's been developed here at the Engineering School at the University of Calgary is zero-carbon hydrogen production from uh, from oil reservoirs, which is a very cool new technology that is just um, gaining ground now. And there's a company that was started here in Calgary called Proton Technologies that I'm involved with that is um, that is developing this technology further. So I think what we'll see is these kinds of technologies. We're not going to go back in time. People are, are accustomed to having energy-rich lives, and that is going to continue uh, to happen. But we will find ways of, of doing that um, through new technologies and new business models that, that are lower carbon emitting. Dr. Vredenberg, any final thoughts? At some point, we well, the predictions are that... Uh, we're not going to reduce our carbon emissions fast enough to cause real problems. Uh, the Paris Agreement said we should be keeping global temperatures below 2 degrees Celsius on average, preferably 1.5 degrees. We're tracking for considerably higher than that. Uh, there's another technology which was actually started here at the University of Calgary, and it's called a negative emissions uh, technology, and it is uh, produced by now by a, car- a company called Carbon Engineering, which has its first major plant in Squamish, British Columbia. And what it does is it takes carbon out of the air and turns it into a synthetic fuel, in in a synthetic gasoline or or diesel made from the carbon in in the air. And that was founded by a a brilliant scientist by the name of David Keith, who was a professor here at the University of Calgary for a number of years and then left a few years back to go to Harvard. Uh, But he's the brains behind this this operation of carbon engineering. And the recent issue of... uh, 
of The Economist magazine out of London um, has an interesting series of charts there showing if we mitigate our emissions enough, we may not have to use that. But the less we mitigate, the more we're going to have to rely on these uh, carbon extraction technologies. And carbon engineering is one, but there are other initiatives like this that are happening. This has been The Big Question. We've been talking to Dr. Harry Vredenberg, a professor of sustainable development at the University of Calgary's Haskane School of Business about the perception of carbon pricing. For more stories about research at the University of Calgary, visit explore.ucalgary.ca. The Big Question is a co-production of CJSW and the University of Calgary. In The Big Question, we explore the world's biggest challenges with researchers from across the University of Calgary. The Big Question airs monthly on CJSW. To listen to past episodes, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or visit cjsw.com or explore.ucalgary.ca. I'm your host, Brayden Alexander. Thanks for joining us and we'll see you next time.